Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I don't drink coffee, I take tea, my dear. I like my toast on one side. But you can hear it in my accent when I talk. I'm an Englishman in New York. Felix Salmon. This Englishman in New York is in fact the biggest thing to fly in from Heathrow since the Beatles first landed at JFK. (laughs) Media watcher, Wall Street provocateur, and nibbler of dainty cucumber sandwiches. Every day. The senior editor at Fusion tests the resolution of the young with tales of the small failings of the great and shames the eager with ironic praise. Close quote. Oh, and with the help of the bully pulpit of his 152,000 Twitter followers. Felix moderates at the Milken Institute, he gadflies at Davos and Aspen, and he's been spied in Miami seeking a breakfast of bangers and mash. All of which has prepared him for the apotheosis of his career, appearing on Full Disclosure, where we will have an absolutely scrummy time listening to this bloke give the media world a good bollocking. So stay tuned. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's, located in Richmond's Carytown. Felix Salmon, good sir, good morrow to you. Uh, okay, I mean, I'm not entirely convinced by this whole weird sort of Victorian England thing. You've it's got, all BS. You've, you've it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick to get everybody Don't to listen. Don't you know that we've got this cool Britannia thing? I mean, have you even visited England in the past 50 years? It, the tikka masala is wonderful. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, That's, thank you, I mean, sir. It's one of the things which fascinates me, actually, is is the is the existence of this bizarre dish called chicken tikka masala, which has no counterpart in India or anywhere in the subcontinent. It's an entirely 100% English dish, which doesn't really have any kind of um, platonic recipe. It's whatever the restaurant wants to throw in it, as long as it's got chicken in it, really. Well, you're a product um, of modern-day Britannia, right? The, the country expelled you roughly, was it 1997? 1997, I, 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 <laughs> I left on an Air India flight, to be to be exact. Air I had India. a return ticket, and I remember when the, the return leg of my return ticket expired. It was the horrible, it was a gruesome, gruesome flight. It was the kind of worst days of Air India and that's saying something <laughs> and um, and I never wanted to to use that return leg of the ticket so I never did uh, Felix I do want to get to brass tacks thank you by the way for joining us I know the Upper West Side in Manhattan is a schlep from your your uh, your, your, your hovel uh, on the East River down in the East Village <laughs> I would like to ask you sir there is a legend and I, all kidding aside here that you are you are related to tea money uh, you know, mentioning the British East India Tea Company. The, the, you know, it used to go around in circles that Felix Salmon, the great media and finance writing presence, actually uh, comes from uh, a, a storied tea family in the UK. Is there any truth to that? No. There um, is none. Uh, when you said tea money, I thought you were talking about some kind of rapper who I'd never heard of. Oh, well, like the know, British East the, India the Tea Company. Tea Whoa, but a chain of tea stores? Is this true? So, we, okay. So there was something called the Lion's Corner Houses. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a chain of tea shops, yes, uh, where we had waitresses called Jennies, and there were dozens of them all over London and I think the country. So yeah, that's that's the um, 
That's the salmon family way back when. Wow. So you went short uh, tea shops and then long uh, finance <laughs> the, the media in 1997. The tea shops were long closed when I was born. Oh, it wasn't a pear trade or something? You know, shorting your um, pound sterling and going long yeah, New no, York it, City it, real it estate? Was, there, there was no real family business anymore when um, by the time I graduated. So I had to make up my own career. Such such as it is. Well, take me back to 1997. So you said you came in here on this uh, this traumatic uh, Air India ticket. It was with one leg very was abandoned. smelly. <laughs> what took you to New York? What what brought you to New York, and why did you stay in New York? Uh, I came to New York for the very simple reason that it is the center of the universe, and I thought to myself that, seeing as how I had a job offer in New York and seeing as how if I didn't take it, I reckoned that I was just going to spend the rest of my life in London and I ought to, you know, see the world a little bit. Um, I would spend a year or two in New York and broaden my horizons a little. What I never expected was that I would stay. Well, what did you study? Um, in college, I studied history of art and philosophy. And so why were you uniquely suited to, to you know, writing about deep finance, esoteric finance? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm absolutely not uniquely suited to just about anything, really. This, is, this was all completely random. So we fast forward 18 years later. You're one of the most recognized bylines in all of financial journalism. I know you're self-effacing about this, but I want to put it out there. I mean, you've won a Loeb Award. You were uh, one of the people who uh, cut through the crap before the subprime crisis and actually warned. One of the journalists out there, I remember, I believe you were blogging for Portfolio.com. And I sat at Business Week next to Matt Goldstein. And he's like, you got to read this guy, Felix Salmon. And we see this caricature, this cartoon of some guy in plaid. Uh, writing about you know these 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 horrible omens in 2007 and 2008, a, a lot of which came to pass. Uh, how did you get from your art history major to, you know, opining like being the definitive byline circa 2007? Well, a lot of the subprime stuff came straight from the guy who just fired me, um, Nuriel Rubini. I do a Nuriel Rubini got... impersonation. Impersonation. If you want, if you want to hear it, you know, just to get me in trouble. Go, go on, do, do, do an impersonation of right, Nuriel so Rubini, Rubini firing on, me. On CNB, uh, Felix, it's it not working out here. I see the green shoots of your career are, are sprouting elsewhere, but it's not working out. Felix, I want you to, to, to take maybe half a week of severance, and uh, the, the, we will um, uh, we, 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 we circle back to it. Also, leave me the numbers of any girls you know here in New York. Yeah, of course, a green I'll, shoot I'll, I'll is going give, to I'll be give a fungus. Yeah, for that it's terrible. <laughs> Go ahead, tell us. I mean, I would think that you know, as a good Persian, you could do better than that. But um, he's a Turkish Persian by way of Italy. It's a it's a very difficult accent to pull off. It it is hard. Um, but Nuriel is is a good guy. I like him a lot. He um, taught me everything I know about subprime. Well, I was working for him, and I was actually taking the other side of the trade, as it were. I was trying to balance out. The site that he had, Rubini Global Economics, which still exists in a slightly different form, um, he was obviously, he had the name on his on the door, he was blogging up a storm at the time, and everyone associated the company with him, and so my job um, was to basically, or part of my job was to come in and show that there was a range of opinions. So, because I have no equity in being right, I just decided that I was going to say, it's all fine, and these things are over-collateralized, and there's nothing to worry about. Um, but by the time I arrived at Portfolio, I knew what, you know, how bonds worked. I knew how subprime worked. I had spent a lot of time working for this company, this magazine called Euro Money, talking, writing about structured finance and things like that. So I understood 
fixed income in a way that a lot of financial journalists really didn't and credit and that kind of and, and ABS and that kind of thing. So my main job at Portfolio wasn't really to sound the alarm so much as it was to just explain what was going on and explain how all of this leverage was going to or you know had the ability to really cause massive economic damage. So this this segs into what we're going to talk about, whether there's a rate of return on investing in media. I remember Portfolio was a significant foray, maybe the last gasp for the, the Newhouse family that, that, that owns Condé Nast, which after all was the province of black cars and and uh, you know, um, a bottle service. There was a there was an editor I worked with once who said that the interns would line up to get their editor's credit card for the eyebrow threader who would show up at whatever it was Cosmo or whatever the whatever those magazines were. Not was it Vogue? Um, you know the van. This Vogue, is this yeah, no, is Cosmo is not Condé. Cosmo, uh, Cosmo is, Condé. is is Hearst. I'm sorry, my bad. But uh, this was a hundred million dollar foray for them, and I, I thought it was an ambitious publication. It certainly had the thud factor. And you, to my mind, you really anchored the online presence uh, as as Twitter was kind of uh, taking over. Um, um, you know, this was not deliberate. I the the idea behind portfolio. Remember that it was dreamed up during the sort of boom years, not right. not the best years. And the idea behind Portfolio was that it was going to be a broad and not unfluffy business magazine, that it would appeal more to women, that it would have lots of luxury goods advertising, that it would have lots of inspiring stories about entrepreneurial success and all of this kind of thing. But then... Almost as soon as it started, it ran headlong into the financial crisis, and suddenly um, what people wanted was finance news and financial analysis and macro stuff, and that was not what it was really set up to do, and basically it therefore fell to Jesse Isinger on the magazine side and me on the um, website, who were the finance people, to sort of do that, because there was no one else really at the at portfolio who who had that um, portfolio. And you you did that with enough aplomb uh, that you pretty much saved your own tail when the entire thing went under. You were that indispensable person to hire. If I remember correctly, Reuters came after you. Uh, yeah, well, I I, um, I made a bit of a mistake, to be honest. I, I jumped ship to Reuters one month before the entire thing went under. And if I'd, um, if I'd stayed on a portfolio for that one month, I would have been paid out for the full year's contract. So that was a bit stupid. But I, yeah, no, I, I had a great time at Reuters. I was there for five years, which is by far the longest I've ever managed to hold out in the job. And it's a, it's a very noble um, newswire. And let me let me play up the, the drum roll to what was it? April 2014, uh, you, you would pen what was your last column for Reuters. You said, I will be leaving this fine place in a few weeks. And then the entire... Uh, media glitterati cognoscenti world is a buzz. Like, where's he going to go? Where's he going to go? Where's he going to go? It's like it's like a cross between opening up Capone's vault and a LeBron's big decision, taking his it was skills just to South like Beach. LeBron. Like, and wait, that was, you took uh, you, you know. the irony is you took your skills to South Beach. Well, sort of, in that Fusion is nominally based in Miami, Florida. That was not, a tortured not, segue. Not quite <laughs> as not quite as um, glamorous as South Beach. It's based in Doral, Florida, which is a sort right of by the airport, Miami right suburb, by the right airport. by the airport. Oh, I'm from Miami. I know it well. Tell us how you picked Fusion and what is Fusion. I know you get that meaning of life question endlessly, and it's it's pondered on the Twitter sphere daily. So I picked Fusion because it's a really exciting project, and because it's run by an incredibly uh, con- like 
charismatic and talented man called Isaac Lee, who, when he really wants you and has his eyes set on you, it's almost impossible to say no. He has this kind of, um, you know, Tina Brown style, Steve Jobs style reality distortion field. Um, so he basically said to me, come work for Fusion, just experiment with stuff and do new things and feel okay if you fail and it doesn't work because what we're trying to do is something very new here. And Fusion itself is basically a full, you know, full width media organization. We have a TV channel, we have a website, we're very active on Instagram and Vine and Snapchat and all of the rest of it. Um, you know, we're in every conceivable channel you can imagine. And what we're trying to do is just present um, news and anything current and compelling in a new way, in a fun way to an audience of snake people. Have you honestly heard of, had you heard of Fusion? Had you spent much time studying it before you got the overture from Isaac Lee? Well, I've known Isaac for over a decade, so... How did you yeah, first I, meet him? Where did this, where did this go back to? We, um, we both, we, he used to run a magazine called Poder. Poder, um, yes. Poder, yes. I don't know if you remember Poder. So I saw it in Colombia, right, right. Colombia, then he expanded it to Mexico, and then at some point there was an English language edition and I started writing a column for that. You wrote an English language, wait, 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 you wrote an English column for Poder magazine? I did indeed. You have this zealot-like ability, whether Euro money or you know art history major. We're just trying to you know peel back the layers of of this uh, uh, cross-continental enigma they call Felix Salmon. So now you find yourself senior editor at Fusion. You are one of their trophy hires. It opened up a lot of eyes when you go after a guy like Alexis Madrigal at the Atlantic, who many people thought could be in line to to run the entire Atlantic.com operation and the magazine. Uh, they got Kevin Rose from. Uh, New York Magazine, was it? They brought a, a bunch of big names on that split time between Oakland and Miami and New York. And you would have to concede so far with mixed results. I mean, certainly the cable channel Fusion, it's the center of gravity there, the profit center. It's a joint venture between Disney's ABC and Univision. It's yet to really register on the cable dial. Number one, the TV channel is not the center of gravity. It was the first part to launch partly because ABC and Univision are TV channels and um, you know that's what they know how to do um, but I, I you know certainly from my perspective on the digital side I, I consider the digital presence to be the real heart of what we do because that's the way that information gets consumed these days but certainly by our target audience and I think that we are doing an amazing job of defining ourselves and putting out some great stuff. If you saw the coverage that we've been doing of the shootings in South in, in Charleston, for instance, it's just fantastic stuff. And we're we're it's take you know we have never been in a rush to get to where we want to go. We have runway and we intend to use it, but we have come so far over the past year or so. And what's even more exciting is that the. Um, rate of 
evolution and the degree with which each week is better than the last, the, the previous week, is just getting faster and faster. And I, I'm, I couldn't be more excited about um, the, the direction we're moving in. But certainly, when you put fusion in the context of this this boom in, you know, I think explainer websites attracting really great talent. You look at at, at the Voxes, at the Buzzfeeds of the world. Not that they're all the same, but I asked Sarah Lacey this several weeks ago. Um, the, these these um, sites are not exactly subsisting on cash flow. It's not like you bring in a Felix Salmon and suddenly your your ad rates and your click rates go through the roof and you're getting an immediate return on investment. It increases it increases the cachet of the brand. Maybe the enterprise value of the brand it's it's bandied about in in kind of post money valuation circles, but. Uh, it, it still gets back to the original bind that you invest in journalistic talent and content, and you're not getting a return on that content. Well, I mean, we can talk about the economics of the news industry, which more I'd generally. love to do. Yes, as a as a great segue um, into your most recent column. But you know, I mean, this I, I think I think you're making a sort of category error if you start comparing fusion with sort of VC funded uh, news sites like Vox or. BuzzFeed or even Pando, um, I think that, or I, I think that what we have at Fusion is that you know we have long-term strategic investors who are not looking necessarily for, um, you know, an exit. In fact, they're definitely not looking for an exit. They mm-hmm. what they're looking for is a new franchise which can serve an entirely new generation for decades and decades to come. Like there's a gener- there's this is the largest and most diverse generation that America has ever seen. Um, you know, the the younger parts of that generation are still teenagers right now, of and the, those people are going to grow old. You know, over decades, and they are not necessarily going to be consuming the same news media that you know their parents and grandparents did they're going to be consuming news in a very very different way but they are going to be consuming news and there are going to be brands which they trust uh, over those decades and our job is not to make a big splash within the sort of 5 year time horizon of your average vc our job is to create a you know a whole new way of storytelling for a whole new generation for you know decades to come now, so I think we just have a very different time horizon. I see. Uh, you were uh, recently, let's say a half a fortnight ago, Felix, you wrote that the New York Times should really buy Bloomberg. Yes, really. And I love how you do stuff like this because on its face it would seem patently absurd. You know, Mike Bloomberg is worth nearly $40 billion as founder and majority owner of Bloomberg. Uh, New York Times enterprise value might be worth all of $2.5 billion. There's, uh, yes, a super voting quasi-public currency that the Salzberger family has. But how do you how do you propose something like this? Or you're doing it to make the case that uh, this is not really economic value to the New York Times. They could just print shares endlessly and, in theory, buy Bloomberg. Well, I mean, I actually came at this from a philanthropic angle believe it or not, Hmm. because Mike Bloomberg is one of the biggest and most important philanthropists in the world. And he has pledged to give away all of his money, Um, not just half of it at some point, but he says that he wants to bounce the check that he writes to the undertaker. He wants to give away all of his money by the time that he dies. Um, And so if you stop and think about that, how can he do that? How can Mike Bloomberg actually give away his money when he's busy 
when, when, when he owns 80% of Bloomberg, because obviously if he sells Bloomberg, then he won't own 80% of Bloomberg anymore, or 88% actually. And, um, and so, you know, he has this whole question of how can he have his cake and eat it? And at the same time, he has this ambition to buy the New York Times. He's made no secret of that. Mm. Um, and it turns out that if you just do this kind of reverse takeover thing, where the very small New York Times company prints two and a half billion shares um, and uses them to acquire Bloomberg, then that solves a whole bunch of problems at one stroke. You know, it gives Bloomberg, the per- the man, um, effective control over the New York Times. He's basically bought the New York Times at that point, which is great for him. But it also gives him this uh, the, these Class A shares of the New York Times company, which he can sell while still retaining control of his company and of Bloomberg LP and of the New York Times. So he does get to, con- to, to retain control while giving away his fortune, which is something he can't really do right now. Well, let's bifurcate the issue and let's look at, at, at Bloomberg first and foremost. I mean, this is a company that was it is private, uh, but it has suddenly, you know, Mike Bloomberg, since leaving City Hall, was at the beginning of 2014 and coming back, reasserted control of Bloomberg. He had bought my magazine, Business Week. Um, you know, the the, the idea uh, when he bought us maybe in 2009, 2010, that it would be much more of a front-facing, consumer-facing operation. He's invested in radio, in uh, TV. And then he comes back, and instead of spending uh, full time uh, on his philanthropy, he really wanted to roll up his sleeves and get intimately involved in the particulars of uh, running this media empire. In fact, I believe his first email that he sent out was, uh, please make sure your badges uh, face out so that I can tell who the names are and you can help security guards here. That there's this idea of control over there. And he might uh, well get, he would love control of the New York Times. It would be a pittance for him to even pay twice its enterprise value now at $5 billion compared to his net worth of closer to $40 billion. Um, but do you really think that these cultures would, would get along? I mean, one, let's let's take it aside. What do you think about the peculiarities of the Bloomberg culture? Certainly they've made many passes at you. They'd be crazy if they did it. I, I'm permanently fascinated by Bloomberg. And I, you know, I didn't want to go from Reuters to Bloomberg, which is a well trod path. You know, I I was more into doing something a bit more experimental. And, you know, I felt that I was at a point in my career that that it was time to take some risks. Did Mike himself make an overture to you? I have never spoken to No, this is not true. I have spoken to Mike himself. But I the last time I spoke to Mike himself, believe it or not, was in 1995. So he probably doesn't remember that. Um, you know, in 1995, it, he used to rollerblade through Central Park. He was the the friendly guy with the data terminal company who would rollerblade through Central Park. In 1995, I actually wrote an article about whether Bloomberg was going to get disrupted by this brand new thing called the internet. Mm. And I interviewed um, Mike Bloomberg for that, and he laughed and said, no, not going to happen. And like all good you know, forward-thinking young people, I was like, this guy has no idea what's about to hit him. Of course, he was absolutely right. And um, the internet didn't seem to do any visible harm to the Bloomberg whatsoever. So, yes, you're absolutely right. He's come back, um, reasserted control over the company which he owns. It's kind of natural in many ways for the founder and, you know, supermajority owner to also be the CEO when that isn't the case. Um, you know, there's a lot of second guessing going on about what that individual wants. And sure. so it's easier for that individual to just run stuff. Um, 
Yeah, and the, and he definitely wants to expand Bloomberg's news operation so that it's not just um, you know a wire service for financial professionals, but it's um, a, a, a genuinely influential news operation uh, which reaches everyone in America and the world, in the you know consumers and businessmen and everyone. So that's that's what he's working on. He's hired some really smart people like. Josh Tarangel and Justin Smith to help him do that. And, you know, I mean, my friend um, Joe Weisenthal has has joined them to do a new TV show and do fun things on the internet that um, they have. They, they, they brought in Josh um, Topolsky from The Verge to you know, really shake it's up really, the website. It's really, the, isn't the new it asymmetric? Looks great. looks great. Isn't it really asymmetric warfare, though, in Media Land? They can afford anyone. Um, and, 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 you know, not that media has ever made a profit for them. Maybe it never will. It's going to be just a sprig of parsley on the entire enterprise that is the, the kind of the terminal. Um, well, and it's $22,000 I mean, like, a month. I, I used to think that, um, although there was this recent um, massively too long <laughs> article about Bloomberg in, in Politico magazine, which, um, if you can get to the end of it, congratulations, but which... That near near the top of it, there's a quote from some analyst of some description I'd, I'd never heard of before, um, who said that if the news operation went away, then the terminal revenues would drop by thirty to fifty percent. Do you really I don't believe know that? if that's true. I I don't necessarily believe that, but I do believe if you think if you think of the revenues of um, Bloomberg being what are they eight or nine billion nine billion dollars a year something like that. Um, you know, that some non-negligible percentage of those revenues can reasonably be attributed to the news operation. Um, and, you know, the news operation is expensive, but it's not a billion dollars a year expensive. Sure. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Felix Salmon, the incomparable Felix Salmon, the inimitable Felix Salmon, Englishman in New York, senior editor at Fusion. Uh, what about the other side of that ledger, the New York Times? Uh, we talk about unilateral disarmament. After all, you know, the Wall Street Journal is acquired eight years ago, was it, by Rupert Murdoch, a billionaire. He has written down a lot of the value of the Wall Street Journal. He still lets go of staff. But again, it's News Corp is billionaire-backed. Uh, the Washington Post is billionaire-backed now in Jeff Bezos with the Graham family having capitulated a couple of years ago. It seems like the New York Times with the Salzburgers is really a relic. The only thing out there protecting them from the world is this dual-share uh, voting structure of stock. And it's not well, like Rupert they're Murdoch has exactly the same structure. He doesn't, have, he doesn't own a majority of News Corp. Correct, he but he's, still a, he's still a billionaire who can stick the company with, what is it, $2 billion of cash when he spins it off from the rest of his empire. And you just don't have that in the Salzburgers. Why? You know, it, it seems like, you know, they have the family name. They want to hold on to it. They've had several dances before with activist shareholders. Obviously, Mike Bloomberg has made it known that he'd love to buy these guys if they would kiss his ring. Um, what do you what do you see happening there? Can they just afford to, to maintain the status quo in this environment where everyone is billionaire or venture backed? Well, um, you, you can certainly, well, I think venture backed is not... Um a good thing. It's a bad thing, right? Venture. The the, the way that venture back companies work is that they fail nine out of ten times, and that so long as the venture capitalists manage to get monster returns on that other one out of ten, they don't really mind what happens to to the rest of them. So, um, 
you know, the New York Times has been around for a very long time. It's seen a lot of competitors come and go. And so long as it can stay cash flow positive, um, there's no particular reason why it needs to sell. I, You know, the question is, if it has ambitions to grow, um, you know, does it have the cash which it needs to do that? You know, to, right now it has this amazing franchise. It has one of the most valuable brand news brands on, on planet Earth. And it's doing a reasonably good job of, of monetizing that brand by selling subscriptions and by selling advertising. But it could be bigger if they if they had, you know, a little bit of um, cash behind them. On the other hand, you know, those kind of expansions are dangerous. And maybe if they, you know, stay living within their means, and they are making money, um, you know, it's, it's sensible to just hold on to that relatively highbrow brand and not try and expand it too much. But Felix, they'll never, they'll never at this rate be able to afford really the fully loaded costs of their newsroom, of all the bureaus, of uh, bulletproof jackets for people who they put in Iraq and Afghanistan just on digital revenue alone. It's still that that yoke, <laughs> that rich yoke, right. which so is the, diminishing the from is, paper advertising. The, yeah, I mean, they, they still make much more money from the print product than they do from the digital product. And, you know, the question is, how long is that going to last? And, you know, is there some kind of long-term plan to increase digital revenues to the point at which they can support the newsroom or conversely to restructure the newsroom so that it can continue to put out great journalism um, at lower cost. And those are the big sort of existential questions facing the New York Times. And as you say, those are not the kind of existential questions which Mike Bloomberg wakes up and thinks about because he's already making more money than God. Right, right. Uh, what would you do if they actually put you up there on the board? They say, Felix Salmon, you're a, a friend of this newspaper. Certainly we wrote about you. They dedicated a whole story to you landing at Fusion. I mean, that has got to be pretty unbelievable. When you think about coming here on that stinky flight and you were a no one living the bohemian existence on ramen noodles and cheap tea, and then fast forward 17 years and the New York Times is telling the world, this is where Felix Salmon's going. Cheap tea is the best tea. Um, <laughs> what would so, you tell them to do? They've, they've given a lot of money to McKinsey, um, and this is a work in progress. They brought another Briton in, and I, th I forget the CEO's name from, from the BBC. It's a Mark work in Thompson. progress, Mark Thompson. I'm sure they've made overtures to you, like, kid, we can we can give you a uh, – we can pay for your subway card. We can't pay you what Bloomberg would pay you, uh, but we'd love to have you. I I think I think the New York Times is a is a fantastic newspaper. I think, you know, the big questions are how much time does it have and what does it need to do um in in those years where the print revenue is still here. You know, how long is that print revenue going to last and you know, how do you invest it to make sure that the New York Times can continue indefinitely? Um yeah, frankly, if you structure it correctly, um some kind of deal with Bloomberg might not be the worst outcome, uh, precisely because, uh, you know, Bloomberg doesn't have those Picayune cash flow problems that, that the rest of us do. Um, so when I joined Reuters, when, you know, I was sort of umming and eyeing and saying, should I go join Reuters? And a very good 
friend of mine who's one of the smartest digital thinkers I know said to me, yeah, what, at some point, everyone's going to be owned by Bloomberg and Reuters because <laughs> because they've worked out how to make the money. They're very, very profitable. Really, the, the sky lobby, the sky lobby at Bloomberg Global Headquarters in New York City is like a this is your life of you know Wall Street Journal lifers. People bump into each other like I had no idea you're at Bloomberg. Of course you're at Bloomberg. It was a it was a trippy three four years that I spent there. Um, so you know Reuters <laughs> has decided not not to go down that road but it makes in, it makes eminent sense that Bloomberg has decided to and is you know and is and is making this push into media more generally because that gives it influence you know you know it's like if if you're just a financial wire service you're never going to get that interview with the president but if you have consumer media then then you can and let's take this to the micro micro level Felix Salmon as a as a candid uh wordsmith uh you dedicated one of your columns February 9 2015 Words of wisdom to all the young journalists asking for advice. I'm, I'm reading uh, your own words. Dear budding journalist, thanks very much for your email. I'm always happy to meet just about anybody and would love to find some time to have that coffee with you. Of course, I'm also very flattered by the lovely things you said about me and about how you'd love to have a career in journalism where you might be able to do the kind of thing that I do. But you won't. Explain. Journalism is changed more in the past decade than it did in the 40 years previously. There's no constant in journalism. There's nothing you can take for granted anymore except for change. And all I know for sure is that whatever success looks like in you know 10 years time or 20 years time, it's not going to be what happened to me. It's going to be. It's going to be very different. I came. I ha, I managed to time it through sheer luck. Um, you know, during that sort of bloggish revolution, I started blogging back in the early two thousands, and then blogging became a thing, and people wanted to read my blog. Now blogs don't really exist anymore for various good and bad reasons. Um, so you know, the next thing has to be the next thing. You can't just sort of copy me. Um, I'm I'm an old at this point. I've been around the block a few times. The new kids, you know, and I work with a lot of unbelievably smart and talented people at Fusion, and I know there are many at uh, many other places like you know, Vox Media and and elsewhere, Buzzfeed. Uh, you know what? You know the the smart thing to do is to do something which has never been done before, not to try and copy what worked in the past, but try to invent what's going to work in the future. And if you manage to do that, there's definitely you know glory ahead of you. But I have to say, you know, counterfactually, if you were to take, if you were to hive off, you know, FelixSalmon.com, just like WalterMossberg.com, the handful of people out there who are known not by the publication that, that fills out their W-4 or whatever the heck it is, uh, but th- their byline, their byline staying power. No one really cares who Felix Salmon writes for. It's the Felix Salmon byline that I'm looking for. Could you afford, I mean, would that would that existence be able to subsidize your... Your day-to-day right now, if you just went there and tried to maybe subsist on on subscription fees or online advertising, I'm thinking of Andrew Sullivan. I'm thinking of um, uh, Walt Mossberg went off and, and with Kara Swisher and did Recode, which was just recently acquired. That didn't find much traction. Is there any solution out there for a person who really wants to throw his heart and soul into great content creation to, to make a living off of this, notwithstanding uh, the generosity, the largesse of a billionaire? Um, 
Well, there's I think blogging is dead. Andrew Sullivan closed down his blog. There's basically the 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 standalone single voice blog um, was fun while it lasted, but it doesn't. You know, the reverse cron thing does not exist anymore. Um, even I've stopped doing it. The newsletter model has been around for decades, where a very smart individual sends out a newsletter to a bunch of subscribers who read the newsletter. And one of the most prominent proponents of that model is a guy called Ben Thompson, who has a newsletter called Stratechery, which Mm -hmm. comes out every morning and is fantastic. And he's unbelievably smart. And he has, you know, I I don't know, like a four-figure number of subscribers who pay um, a good amount of money, you know, sure. hundreds of dollars a year, a year to 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 subscribe to his newsletter, and he can make a decent individual living doing that, um, and good for him. The he, you know, he used to be a management consultant. He deals in the financial um, side of of the tech industry and the media industry, and as such, he is valued by financial professionals sure. who buy his newsletter to make money. There's actually an entire public company which is devoted to selling newsletters to you know, financial newsletters to individuals who subscribe to those newsletters because they want to make money. Um, that company is called thestreet.com. Do you call those and investors punters, by the way? I, I do. I mean, well, thestreet.com is, is, is generally aimed more at um, what you might call individual investors. Um, or you know what I think of as like stock market hobbyists. There's a very large number. Are those of, punters or wankers? I never quite understood the difference. No, no, no. I mean, you don't. There's no need to be rude about them. But what I'm saying <laughs> is that there's um, there's a very large number of like fifty something white guys with excess risk capital mm. to their name, and their hobby is investing, just like other. You know, like you know, they might have. It, it probably costs sure. it. It probably costs them money, but it probably doesn't cost them more money than the golf hobby does. You know, golf is expensive. You know, active investing is expensive. Which one's more expensive? I don't know. But you know, at least with you know investing, you have a dream of maybe you can make money, maybe you of can course. be successful. Of course. These are the people who you know have supported barons for decades, and they're always going to be around. And so, if you if you sell a newsletter to them, you can make money. Um, then, you know, a newsletter like Ben Thompson's is more aimed at professionals rather than individuals who, you know, need to stay on top of the industry because they work in PC or work in media or work in tech. They always, you know, they have some kind of vice president title or something like that. And, you know, and actually Reuters bought a company not dissimilar to that called Breaking Views, which still exists within Reuters. It's a kind of self-contained um unit within within Reuters and those those things exist and they can make money but they generally um only exist in that relatively narrow sure. financial sphere i haven't seen it work outside finance mm. And so it's really not possible for you right there. It, it does boil down to uh, some guy out there wanting to subsidize it. Maybe, maybe he has a vision like Isaac Lee. Maybe he just doesn't care. Mike Bloomberg has a lot of money to throw around. But this stuff, um, and, and it speaks to the point that you made down in that column advising the aspiring aspirational journalist that um, there's just too much of a supply of people out there willing to do this as a kind of a loss-leading venture for you to have any decent chance at making a living out of this. 
Okay, there's a slight. I mean, there's a few different issues here. I mean, I do think that you know, if you fast forward ten years, there are going to be a handful of news organizations which really do make real money um, because they've managed to get it right and they understand how news is consumed in this new world. You know, of everything being on your phone. Um, and obviously, Fusion would love to be one of those organizations. You know, ABC and, and Univision are investing in us not just because they're billionaires with, with money to spend. Like, one of them's a public company, one of them's about to be a public company, you know, who have fiduciary obligations to their shareholders. They're doing this because it makes financial sense to do it and because, you know, they, they see a lot of upside there. So I'm not saying that the companies can't make money. In fact, I'm quite explicit in my piece that some of the companies are going to be very exp- very successful, and the owners of those companies are going to be very successful, and they're going to make money. What I say in the piece is that what we're seeing is the primacy of capital over labor. Basically, there's so much supply of incredibly talented labor that unless you're, you know, a founder slash owner, mm. uh, it's going to be very, very hard to make money just in terms of like you're going to pay me a middle class. Um, paycheck to do this job and I'll be able to raise a family for decades by doing this job that kind of that um, kind of social compact has been gone for for quite quite a long time I mean but but the fact is the journalists used to be able to do that and I'm not sure that that's the journalists in general not the big superstars not the people who can set up their own newsletters but just you know everyday journalists who've been working at companies like ABC or the New York Times or Bloomberg for you know 20 years can make decent money and raise a family on that money. I'm not sure that's still going to be true in 20 years' time. We're talking to Felix Salmon, senior editor at Fusion. He's a thought leader. He's a thinkfluencer. He's a, a man about town. Uh, I do want to switch to the world of investing, which, of course, is your kind of you know, your primary bailiwick is writing on finance, or it has been traditionally. You've since branched out quite a bit. Uh, what do you what do you make of this uh, enormous world where there seems to be uh, a trepidation about kind of a, a subprime part due? Uh, that that you know credit formation has been massive. Promiscuous lending has been multiples of maybe what we saw in 2006 and 2005, and that there is going to be a bill to pay. Uh, Markets are at near all-time highs. Uh, The junk bond market has been extremely forgiving, and the window has been open. Uh, Private equity exits, uh, the the unicorn presence of billion-dollar startups. When you step back from all this again, do you think we're... we're, What does this resemble to you? Frankly... Um, you know, if you're asking me, does it resemble 1999 more than it resembles 2006? Um, I would say probably yes, it does. This is, um, you know, the, if there's a crash, it's going to be more of a 2000 style crash than a 2008 style crash. Hmm. That what we don't have is the kind of that. Okay, so put it this way: there's a lot of, as you say, the unicorns to take an extreme example, and the, some of the crazy private company valuations that you're seeing in Silicon Valley, um, everybody knows that those are highly risky investments. And if you have invested in those companies and you lose your money, you're losing your risk capital, just like when people bought into the dot-com boom in the late 90s, they knew that they were taking a risk. And then when 
the market crashed, they lost their money. But there were there was very little in the term in in terms of sort of broad economic repercussions of that. It was just risk capital. You know, sometimes stocks go up and sometimes stocks go down, and then you know they went up and then they went down, and we all, you know the the economy as a whole kept on moving. Um, the you know in in two thousand six during the big sort of subprime boom, it was different because people were people thought that their money was safe. There were these AAA securities where everyone was like, I can lever up and buy these in bulk because they're AAA rated and nothing can touch them. And home prices never go down in value. Of course. And people started you know, leveraging up, um, individuals started levering, leveraging up massively on houses. Um, and that kind of leverage and that kind of belief that you're safe and that you're going to make lots of money while staying completely safe, that I don't see. I see a lot of worry actually out there right now. And so long as people are worried about losing money, kind of we're okay. It's when people stop worrying and think that that their money is safe that the, that the problem arises. The fact is that we've had many years of um, central banks around the world dropping money from helicopters, and that money has to go somewhere. So asset prices in general are higher than they were because they've been inflated by central banks. And that's fine, actually. Like, you know, they used to be at one level. Now they're at another level. Those, those levels can go up. Those levels mm. can go down. Um, if you're worried about losing money, which you have invested in the stock market or, or the bond market, that's irrational money. I mean, it can absolutely, those values can go down. But if you're worried about uh, falling in those markets, having like massive economic repercussions as it did in 2009 um, that I'm, I'm not so convinced about what do you do with your personal money I know you and I don't do not like to sully our hands on stock tips we take a lot of comfort in saying that there are things you can control such as you know diversification and keeping your costs down and indexing but uh, when, when people accost you at a cocktail party and, and ask you this and, and say look just share that moment of, of candor with me what do you do in an environment like this you you're losing money in real terms by leaving it in a savings account you don't I mean, want to I mean, invest in treasuries. What, what would negligible. you do? Um, so there Where are... does Felix Salmon park his money? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer that. It, it depends entirely on your risk profile. If you have enough money already, and what you're mainly concerned about is just keeping that money and making, you know, re- return of capital rather than return on capital, as it were, then what you do is you put at least 90% of your money in treasuries. And that's safe. And that money is always going to be there. And you know there might be a little bit of inflation, and you might lose a little bit on real terms, but in nominal terms, what you're going to be of, fine. Well, I mean, even a 10-year treasury at this point, you don't see significant risk if the Fed has to hike interest rates. And people out there actually realize they can lose you money? You don't mark to market. You just you just hold those bonds to maturity, and you get back more than you paid for them. They're not trading at negative yields, um, and then you just you know you ladder that stuff, and you just have a treasury portfolio, and you're fine. There's there's no credit risk, um, and you know, and then what you do with the five to ten percent of your money that isn't invested in treasuries, then you can start investing that in weird, risky stuff. You can put money into your you know. You can you can become like an angel investor and make all your friends very happy that you're throwing money at them, or you can play the lottery, or you can put, but what put it is into the, the 40, stock market. What is the forty-something Felix Salmon doing? Do you mind my asking? Are you a father? I, I'm not a father, but uh, let me but let me just you know work work through this. 
if you have the money you want already, then it's entirely sensible to go the, the Susie Orman route and to put it all into treasuries. That's where she has all of her money in, in, in T-bills. That's fine. Um, and even, you know, or Nassim Taleb has nearly all of his money in T-bills as well. You know, so if you have lots of money, put it all in T-bills, you will have, you will always have lots of money. You know, if you're Mike Bloomberg, you can, you know, it doesn't matter what you're invested in because you're always going to have lots of money. The question which is harder to answer is if I don't have a lot of money and I want my money to grow, then what do I do? And that's harder to answer because, well, we've already had, you know, five, six years of very strong asset price growth um, in the stock market. The bond market has done well. The stock market has done spectacularly well. It's not credibly going to continue to do as well as it has done going forwards. So, um, you know, basically people are taking more and more risk for lower and lower returns. And that doesn't feel like a great bet to make. But so long as and, and so my main advice is if you want to, if you don't have as much money as you want and you want to make more money, then the number one first thing you should do is just save more. Mm-hmm. Just take a higher proportion of your paycheck and put it into savings. Um, and then, of course, you're still going to ask, well, so where should I invest those savings? And I'm going to, and my, my first message to you is it doesn't matter. The main thing that matters is how much you save, not where you invest. Mm-hmm. But And then the answer to the question, well, come on, answer the question, where do I invest? The answer to that question, frankly, is put it in, yeah. Okay, so there's, again, two two parts. Retirement funds, which is what the main question that a lot of investors love to answer. Retirement funds are kind of the easy bit. Um, Put it all in the Vanguard target date fund, you're fine. Um, You know, so so, uh, that would be my recommendation. Failing that, because Vanguard is a little bit user-unfriendly, there's a couple of these things called robo-advisors on the internet who are also really good, Betterment, Wealthfront. Um, Put your money with any of those, Um, Vanguard, Betterment, Wealthfront, and you'll be fine. You know, your money might go down. I mean, no one's guaranteeing you that your, your, you know, money won't go up and down over time and if the market falls obviously you'll have less but over the long term that seems to be what that's definitely my advice to just do a, the passive investing buy the stock market as a whole um do some smart asset allocation and then if you um and that's all built into the to, to the target date funds and then um you know, if you invest with Betterment or Wealthfront, they do a few other clever things like tax loss harvesting and stuff like that, which might make you a little bit more money at the margin. But don't try to be too clever. Um, and then, you know, the other question is exactly what you're talking about. If you have kids, um, if you need to send them to college, if you want to buy a house, if you have, you know, predictable expenses coming up in the future which aren't retirement, then you're going to need a little bit more conservative of uh, an investing um, risk appetite because you're you, you know you can't uh, like what's the word you can't just sit on that money for 10 years and wait for it to come back because you might need it before then so, so if somebody were to hold yeah. your hand to the fire like Felix Salmon's walking out of a, an opium den in the East Village and a billionaire comes up to him and says you're Felix Salmon if I were to give you $10,000 right now and I'd wire it to several organizations where would you put that to institutions where would you put that $10,000 right oh, now I'd give, it, I'd give it all to Doctors Without Borders you would yeah and uh, so you know, you are in a position right now to be philanthropic, and uh, if if the person, no, I mean seriously, said, that, that, I would give it all to Dogs Without Borders, and they would use it all to save lives, and that's the best investment you can possibly make. Wow.
Well, in the few minutes we have left, Felix, I would like you to take us on a, on a detour to a, another article you've written lately. What I like about you is that you are all over the place. You really chafed at this idea of having to deliver 1,500 words of copy at Reuters on on kind of rote, uh, you know, drip, drip stuff about Greece and the EU and, and, and likewise. And now you've no, kind no, of no, branched no, no. Let's out Let's be clear into... about this. I, I, you know, I didn't chafe. No one was telling me what to do at Reuters. Like, they were very nice to me. They let me do what I wanted. And what, what I did at Reuters is exactly what I wanted to do, which isn't to say that. I didn't want a change. I was I was actually very excited at Reuters to be working on some web stuff there, which didn't. But pan the website out. the website didn't happen. Ultimately, right. that's a newswire, right? And 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 the whole Christia project when she went off. You know, this is inside baseball, mass member of parliament. You are now at a place that is completely freestyle. Um, and you can, if you want to do something straight to video, straight to audio, if you want to have an interpretive dance in Times Square, I'm sure Isaac Lee and Fusion would back you. And you have cable channels at <laughs> the Disney Corporation and Univision there. Give me another story of yours uh, recently that, that you feel should resonate more. Okay, so there's one story which I'm going to tease for you guys, um, which is which we're just slowly rolling out. And it's going to take a little bit of time, I think, but I'm quite excited about it and it's um one of one of the reasons i'm excited about it is precisely because it's not really web-based and it's not really uh, certainly not tv-based it's called me and my art and what it, it springs from my boss coming up to me a month or two ago and saying felix a bunch of young people really want to buy art but they're intimidated by the art world um and they don't know what to do. Can you write something which can explain to them, you know, how to do this, what to do? And I was, you know, picking up my virtual pen and just about to do my sort of patented mansplainer thing of like, well, you can do this and you can do this, and these are different ways you can write. You can befriend artists and go to art galleries, and you know. And I've read that article a few times, and I was all prepared to write that article an nth time. When I thought to myself, no, this is fusion. We should be a bit smarter about this. And so one of the things which I really believe in is show, don't tell journalism. Um, you know, I want to create beautiful, immersive infographics where you can see for yourself what's going on with, say, you know, your expected lifetime earnings with various different degrees, rather than me just telling you that you get to play with a tool and, and see for yourself. And so what I decided to do is just basically create a hashtag on Instagram, which is hashtag me and my art, and then encourage people from all over the country and the world to just take a selfie with a, with a work of art that they own, and say a little bit about themselves, um, who the artist is, what the artwork is, um, how much it cost, and then post it to Instagram. And then what we could do is we could you could just scroll that hashtag and see for yourself the huge range of ways in which people acquire art, the huge range of types of did art. This, that did this idea occur to you in a hallucination or something? How do you come up with this? Where where does that? That's so freestyle. It's crazy. But that's the kind of thing that we're encouraged to do at Fusion. That's the whole point of Fusion is that we do these awesome like experimental things. And so this is a story which basically just lives as a hashtag. And I think that's fantastic. Are you open to expressive dance in the East Village, say a subprime expressive <laughs> dance? Would you do that, Felix Salmon? Uh, if you ask me nicely, I would say no. Felix Salmon, senior editor at Fusion. He's an alien. He's a legal alien. He's an Englishman in New York. 
Thank you for putting up with me for an hour, good sir. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> full disclosure, we're multi-platform cod swallop, full of beans, gormless, mutts nuts, taking the biscuit, labor, Tory, wig, anything you want. We're on NPR One, WRIR, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Full disclosure, back at you next week. <laughs>